professional hackathon programmers travel around the hackathon circuit, winning merchandise and small cash prizes and subsisting on these. There are enough hackathons that some programmers actually do this as a full-time job. For example, Peter Ma, a programmer who describes himself as a rapid prototype specialist. Peter is a great programmer, and he's received lots of offers to work at big tech companies. What drives him to stay independent and work on hackathon projects? There are other types of corporate hackathons. Many of us are familiar with the hackathon where some manager orders pizza and suggests that everybody stays at the office late fixing bugs because it's exciting. It's a hackathon. Some hackathons are held for kids to get them exposed to certain technologies early on. Lizette Chapman is a reporter at Bloomberg where she writes about technology and business and news. And I was fascinated by her story about hackathons, which is linked to in the show notes. It was great to have her on the show to talk about the characters of the hackathon circuit, what drives them, and why corporations sponsor hackathons. Lizette has co-hosted the Bloomberg Decrypted podcast in another episode about hackathons. Decrypted is one of my favorite podcasts, and I recommend checking it out. Lizette Chapman is a senior reporter at Bloomberg. Lizette, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. I'm happy to be here. You've been writing about hackathons recently, and you also did an episode of Bloomberg's Decrypted podcast about these hackathons. What got you interested in hackathons? A couple of things. One of the first ones was just going to parties and hearing from venture capitalists and also some big tech companies all about how they're how they're spending time there and how they're scouting talent there. And then the other thing was this amazing lack of awareness of what really goes on from people who who don't spend time at these. Um, I was speaking with a colleague in New York who is knowledgeable about about so many things deep and and broad. And she thought that it was a gathering to go and and steal people's data. You know, you hear you hear the term hack a lot and and so there's some misconceptions about what actually happens there. And so they, you know, there was a lot of surprise and and she wasn't the only one. There were a lot of other people that I spoke to as well who had never heard of it. And I thought, wow, this is a huge disconnect. This is an opportunity to tell some good stories. Well, hackathon can mean several different things. Why don't you disambiguate what that term actually means? Absolutely. Hackathon in its purest form means to put something together really quickly under a deadline pressure. So you can hack together a solution for something if it's hardware, you know, or or software for that matter, like maybe a a specialized bot to go find links to fake Russian news sites, which is one hackathon project that I saw. Another one was, you know, a special headset that allowed you to control a Tesla with your mind. That's another one that I, I talked to someone who built that. But so so that's that's the hackathon in the purest concept. And there are um, a lot of events that that corporations have sponsored in recent years, internal ones like at Facebook and Google and and other large companies where they say, okay, that's it. We're just going to hack on this one concept for a while. This is your day to hack something together. You know, one company that I spent some time with, this health insurance company back in New Jersey called Clover Health that Sequoia is backing, they they do that once every every three to six months, and it's just a kind of a pause and a reset internally to go and 
and work out some some products and some maybe some you know some glitches that are happening and spend the time to do that deeper R&D under a timeline pressure mind you this isn't an extended time this is like a 24 to 48 hour period to make something better or make something new that has never existed before did i answer your question it definitely answers my question so what are the <laughs> okay. from your point of view what are the pros and cons of cuz i i've worked at companies where they're like all right, on Thursday, everybody's going to have the option to stay late and we're ordering pizza and we're going to do a hackathon. And I'm like, cool, I'm leaving at 6 p.m. as normal. Like, I have no interest in that. That's a type of hackathon that I don't have interest in. But these other hackathons, you know, like the ones that you reported on where a bunch of kids can go on a Saturday to Facebook or maybe they go to their local school cafeteria and they do a hackathon in the cafeteria and it's sponsored by a Facebook or a Google. That's a more appealing type of hackathon. What are the pros and cons of these different types of hackathons? Right. I'm glad you brought that up because there is a really big divide between people that are doing it for money and for networking and job connections, people that are professionals and in the job market already and then people that are doing it that are on the younger side that seem to be doing it more just for the fun of it and for bragging rights. Like I mentioned that, you know, headset to move a Tesla with your mind, you know, that they called it Teslapathic. So the pros and cons of each side, I think it's really up to the individual with the kids and young adults, I should say, who I met at Treehacks, which is Stanford's annual competition. There was a huge desire to, to prove themselves. You know, they've been studying computer science or graphic design or, or, you know, in a related field for months, sometimes years, you know, or they've just taken one or two coding classes. Again, the, the degree of, you know, knowledge really varied a lot, but the desire across the board, everyone that I talked to, it was just this, this thirst to see what they could do. It's kind of like training, you know, doing soccer practice forever. And it's like, okay, well, when's the tournament, you know? So it's, it, there was a similar dynamic at play that I witnessed with, with students at university. And there were a few high school students there too. Mm -hmm. So those were some of the motivations. Those, some of the pros on that side, again, is getting their name out. I think the satisfaction of, of seeing that you built something out of nothing in a very crunched time period, making friends was another big pro that a lot of them talked about, like people that had traveled on buses from Harvard, from Michigan University, all the way to Palo Alto, a couple people flew. And, and so, so meeting people from, from all over the place that shared this, this love of, of building things. And they were able to work together in this very, very tight, intense time period. But they all were having a really good time. Now, this is very different from the, what you described as like, hey, we're getting pizza, we're having a hackathon, and you got to stay up all night. That's, yeah. that's pretty different. And i got to tell you, I, I, I haven't met many people. I didn't meet anyone in the course of reporting this story that went through that experience. Mm. Although I've, I've certainly talked to people like yourself who've had that. That wasn't the focus of this particular story. But I, I heard that it's, it can be tricky. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm conflating a lot of different definitions of hackathons. So the one that I talked about, it, which is where the, a company says, hey, we're having a hackathon on Thursday and you can work on fixing bugs during the hackathon. And the only difference is you're working after hours and we're ordering pizza <laughs> for you. That's a pretty straightforward, like, bad idea, but some companies still do it. Some companies still do it with success. I, I mean, I, I guess it has its its place, but the, the stuff that you were reporting on was, one, this these kids who do hackathons, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but 
you also wrote this story about the hackathon circuit, and that's ah, these. Yes, there's these groups of people who make a living, or or well, you could call it a living. Different, you know, different prizes <laughs> and uh, Amazon gift cards and couches and televisions and stuff that you can win at these different hackathons. So describe what the hackathon circuit is. Uh, the professional hackathoners. These are a group of people, a lot of guys, a few, a few young young women as well, who more who make the majority of their livelihood through winnings at hackathons. These are professional hackathons, not those sponsored by Major League Hacking, which is the you know, which is a site that's more devoted toward the university stuff. These are ones that are sponsored by, you know, Intel by Google, more recently by Procter & Gamble, by you know, New York Fashion Week, by things like that, that, that are looking to get the best and the brightest minds to help them come up with new ideas for their product, to feel more connected to the tech world, because you know, as it is, you know, ev- everything has a tech component these days. There's just no escaping it. And you look at some of these older companies that, are, that aren't traditionally known as a tech company, they're all looking for a way to get to get into it. So these, these professional hackathoners, you know, line up a number of different hackathons and they're all published in advance and based on, you know, the prize money, the type of technology that's there that, that they get to play around with, be it, you know, VR or maybe Amazon Alexa's API, for example, they'll go and they'll select certain ones that they go to and, and compete in for money, prizes, and of course, bragging rights. Mm-hmm. One of the people that you profiled in this hackathon circuit that I think illustrates this type of character quite well is Peter Ma. Tell me about Peter Ma. Ah, Peter. Peter, he's he's constantly fidgeting with something. He's a 33-year-old San Franciscan. He's a former World of Warcraft champion, and he makes a living off of hackathons. Everything in his condo. Everything, his his flat screen TV, his home theater system, his 3D printers, his phones, tablets, computers, even his furniture. They were either hackathon prizes or they were purchased with the winnings. And he knows he could get a corporate job at Google or Facebook or at Uber. And he told me that he's he's actually thought about it and he's, he's entertained job offers from a number of them. But he doesn't want a full time. He doesn't want to be tied down and he can make enough money to live the way he wants to, which includes a lot of traveling and not being beholden to someone else's schedule. He also has Intel that sponsors him. He's an um, Intel's, one of Intel's innovator, Intel's innovator. So he's part of the Intel innovator program, which basically means, you know, he gets all their swag and he gets new gear whenever they come out with it that he gets to play around with and do rapid prototypes for projects that he thinks are interesting. You know, and you asked something interesting. You said, you know, can they can they subsist off of this? Can they make a living? And I think making a living depends on how how someone wants to live. You know, he 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 really, you know, do you want to have a four bedroom, three bath house with a garage and a pool? Well, you know, that's going to be different than someone that wants to backpack the Pacific Crest Trail three months out of the year or, you know, so I think it depends on each individual. And I, I was fortunate enough to meet a a, a pretty pretty broad swath. So anyway, that's that that that's that was an interesting dynamic that I that I was was able to witness. Yeah, I used to play Magic the Gathering really competitively, and <laughs> I met a lot of people who were doing it quote unquote full time, 
but the prize purses at these events, you know, the the competitions for these card games, or, or I think the same is true for World of Warcraft or a lot of these different games, are pretty paltry. Like you know, it's like you're every everybody flies in to compete for a thirty thousand dollar first place prize, which which is a lot of money, but you know, hundreds of people competing for that. That's that's not a it's not enough money that can lead to a subsistence. So you see people change their definitions of what a subsistence income is because they want to compete at this game so much. Now, hackathons are a little bit different. There's much more money in the technology industry. So when a, a company holds a hackathon and they have a first place prize of a big screen television or maybe a $10,000 uh, or a $10,000 Amazon gift card, whatever it is, and they want to attract somebody like Peter Ma so that he comes in and he builds a rapid prototype and he's competing for the first place prize at the hackathon. Why is that valuable? Who is that valuable to, to have somebody like Peter come and show up and compete at the hackathon? It's hugely valuable to the companies. You know, their company is only as good, and it's tech, it's only as good as its next technology. All right. And that next technology is only going to be as popular as the developer enthusiasm around it that can then, you know, breed, you know, more applications, more use cases for it. So you get something like, I don't know, Microsoft HoloLens, say, you know, versus say an Oculus, you know, you get more and more developers saying, you know, let's say Microsoft sponsors a hackathon, you know, and they, you know, they give out say 40 Microsoft HoloLens is there for people to play play around with, and then they give out a bunch as, as prizes. That's you know that's seeding the new the new generation and the next wave of of applications that are going to be relevant. And so it is it is very valuable you know to Microsoft, to IBM, to Intel, to you know even Disney. You know they've all had they all had presences and you know big booths and and developers that were there or developer advocates rather that were there until late, late in the evening or early, early in the morning at the Stanford hackathon because they wanted more people to be excited about their technology. Mm. So it's in their best interest to play nice with developers. Developers are their livelihood. Without them, there's, you know, there's no new technology that's coming from outside the company. This is a subtle difference, but have you looked into the competitive programming community at all? Not as much. Could you tell me about it? Well, the competitive programmers, this is somewhat different because these are people who, so the contest, the competitive programming contest will be something like, they're given a very specific problem like, okay, you're given a billion Chinese words and you need to find the the closest words in English that map to those Chinese words. That's a bad bad mm. example. But basically, these problems that are much more well-defined, so like a hackathon is, you know, you, you hey, here's the Alexa technology. Do something cool with it. And that's fun for some types of programmers. Other types of programmers like a much more specific task, like, hey, uh, implement Facebook, right? Like, and they will see creativity at the lower levels where, okay, cool, implement Facebook. Now I get to choose what framework to use. How can I, like, how can I you know, extract better performance out of this very narrowly defined algorithm? These kinds of things. 
So it's, I mean, it might be interesting to you. I don't know. It's it's a different type of community because these are, you know, there's just people who tend to be more, they're on the extreme end of being mathematically inclined. Where I I would say that people who are attracted to hackathons are more artistically inclined. Interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah, I can see the value in that for sure. You know, and I think that there was a at least at least two or three startups. One is coming to mind called Kaggle, and they actually crowdsource yep. the. Uh, okay, okay. So yeah, I mean, I think that there's a huge desire on the part of a lot of super smart, competitive people to prove themselves. You know, outside of the confines of their you know four walls at work or their four walls of the classroom, for that matter. And it sounds like both of them, you know, meet that meet that threshold. At these hackathons, are people typically working in teams or are they individualistic? Almost 99.9% of the time, based on what I saw, based on who I talked to, it's always teams. You can't build it alone. So there's an interesting dynamic that goes on with at the competitive ones for the professionals. I see, you know, I I saw a, a lot of people that came in you know, and they had their group already. They had, you know, maybe a loose knit group of, you know, like Peter, for example, you know, he had a group of maybe like 10 to 12 people that he talked to on a regular basis. And sometimes they would be available for one hackathon, but not another, you know, one guy in the group, he was kind of in charge of rustling up all of these different hackathons that they could all go as a team and earn and make money on. And he was, he was the guy that would, that would often pitch to the judges at the end, which is a crucial part. It's not only what you build, but it's how well you can explain it to laymen and women and, and, and really sell them on it. And this, this one individual that was on Peter's team, you know, he heard about this hackathon for God and it was a church sponsored hackathon and they wound up going in and after a couple of hours, they, you know, they came away with $10,000, for example. So, you know, there's all different types of, of groups getting involved and, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to see how much it's really taken off. What kind of software do you write when you're hacking for God? Well, in this, I don't know the range of them because I didn't attend that particular hackathon. But the one that Peter and his his group built, it was a way for people who are homeless to find showers and food mm. pickup and also crisis counseling. And I think that there was some drug intervention as well, all on one you know one screen. You know, so that's what they were building. That's great. Now, when something like that gets written, just dis- Does somebody end up deploying it and maintaining the software? Does it just vary from case to case? That is the best question. You nailed it. This is the dirty little secret about hackathons. Actually, someone I talked to at this at this party called them the graveyard for good ideas. Okay. And the the dirty little secret is most of these don't really work all the way. It looks like it works, but maybe the back end's not really connected. There's no entry page. There's no way to log in. The security is all jacked. A lot of times when there's a code update, you know, from, you know, one of the, one of the languages that they've done, or, you know, there's some piece of technology that they've used, some, some API or something, they're not there hanging out. They, meaning the team, isn't there hanging out, making sure it's updated. So you have a lot of interesting projects that don't really go anywhere. I mean, they're kind of just in, in limbo. They're built, but you know, it takes that one of them, one of the guys I was talking to said it took the last 10% takes 90% of the effort working out all those tiny bugs, getting the security done, all everything I just talked about. So yeah, you know, it's definitely not like, Hey, you know, add water and, and here you go. Here's your new top ranking app. It's not like that. Yeah. 
Well, this is what's interesting to me about these companies sponsoring hackathons because I, I, I guess it's it's not a I guess at a company you want both both of these types of people. You want the people who can ship the rapid prototypes. A person like Peter Ma because he's just generating ideas, and even if his ideas go to the idea graveyard, maybe you have uh, blossoming flowers of fully functional products that bloom out of that corpse-ridden compost pile of, <laughs> of, of ideas. Exactly. And you know what, to that point, actually, when I talked to the head of innovation over at Procter & Gamble, one of the people that was involved in sponsoring the Febreze hackathon. Now, this is a Febreze hackathon. They had people there from Park. They had Intel. They had a lot of other co-sponsors to bring more technologies into play that were available for the developers to mess around with, and also just kind of to boost the general goodwill that developers feel toward their companies. Now, when I talked to the people at Febreze, you know, what, what they said was that this is the fastest way to get innovation into our companies. Without a doubt, you know, these, these, different hackers came up with more ideas in a 24-hour period than it than they could have over a several-year period. And that's something that Angel Hacks, which is a group that basically does hackathons for hire or hackathons on demand for a lot of these different large companies that aren't traditionally in technology, that's kind of what they bank on. I want to touch back to something earlier that you said, which is who owns these ideas. And that's a really interesting point. It's, it's a sticking point for a lot of people or it can be. So far, what I've heard is that generally, and again, I haven't done a study on this. I wish someone would, or if they had, reach out to me. Let me know the, the results. But but what I have heard more or less from the people at Angel Hacks, you know, who've worked with hundred, hundreds of different companies sponsoring these, these hackathons, like New York Fashion Week, and again, Procter & Gamble, Nike, some big banks, et cetera, was that the developers own their IP. They go in and they do it and they develop it, you know, but again, the devil's in the, in the details. So getting it from that 90% almost there to the hundred percent, it takes a lot of work and a lot of people from inside the company, or maybe getting that same, that same hacker to come back and work on it. But a lot of times people are just interested in the, in the process of creation. You know, you're hacking something together out of nothing. So that's, that's a big motivating factor along with the money. Speaking of motivation, a lot of engineers in Silicon Valley will express their motivation as making the world a better place. Or, Well, I mean, some of them will just say, okay, I'm just trying to make lots of money right now, and we'll see what happens later. What's the motivation for a hackathon professional? Because it seems like it is neither making lots of money nor making the world a better place. If you're a, if you're a professional hacker... You're not really doing either of these things. I guess that you're just motivated by hacking. Right. Um, I have no way in heck can I speak to the motivations of every individual out there. Mm. Like each, each person is their own, you know, is their own world. And what motivates them maybe one week is going to be different maybe a couple months later. But I can tell you the conversations that I had with people and what they said at the time. For one woman, it honestly was, was, was bragging rights. It was to show how just how fierce she was and what great things she could build in such a short period of time. It was the, the collective wow that, that she got by walking into a room or by just getting, getting recognition and, and respect for her skills, which, yeah, you can get that at a job, but it's not really the same. Um, one guy that I talked to this really interesting guy. Um, he, 
said back in the day, this was a couple of years ago when traveling for hackathons was much more rare. And he flew into one that was being held in New Orleans. And he's here from San Francisco. And when he came in, his flight was delayed. He came in about an hour late. The organizer of the event stopped everything, climbed up on top of the table and made an announcement saying, Roger Pincomb is here from San Francisco. He's the hacker that did this. And he rambled, rambled off this whole list of accomplishments. And Roger told me that he it was the highest high he'd ever felt. It was mm. it was this amazing feeling. He said he felt like a rock star. Now, how often do you get that when you're coding alone in solitary? You just mm. don't get that. But it was because his name was getting out and because and people came up to him later and were like, Wow, that's so great. I saw that you wrote this. And it was it was being recognized for being the best at their skill by by their by their colleagues, you know, and by by their competitors and by by people, by like minded people. And that you know, that's something that, that transcends money. Okay, well, let's talk about these hackathons for kids, because this is another side of the hackathon mm. world. Why are companies running hackathons for kids? To be clear, the companies are not running the hackathons. Oh, okay. It is a university, like let's take Stanford or mm. University of Michigan or CalHACS. They're, usually it's their local computer science department you know, or there's like a, a, you know, a computer club or, you know, whatever it is, it varies by name at each campus, but you get the general idea. And then they, you know, typically will reach out and find sponsors who are willing to foot the bill, which includes food mostly because they, they keep these folks, which can run anywhere from, you know, like, I think it was like a hundred at the university of Merced or excuse me, uh, Merced, yeah, California State University of Merced, uh, that was a couple months ago, to to several thousand. I think PenApps is one of the largest ones. So imagine feeding and keeping hydrated all of these people and then the bathroom facilities and all that, So it, it, and then renting out the location. So any large area with screaming fast Wi-Fi, bathrooms, and lots and lots of outlets will be fine. And it's for 24 to 48 hours. And again, it's not the corporations that are, that are sponsoring it, they, excuse me, that are, that are holding it. They're, they're going to sponsor it. And your question is, why would they do that? Again, same reason to get their name out, to engender goodwill with these, you know, different students. And, you know, ultimately in some cases to hire them and they get a list of the people that have participated if they agree to share their information and they say, Oh yeah, I remember that project so-and-so worked on. Let's reach out after the fact. So it's kind of this warm network of very bright, motivated people that instead of going out and partying on a Saturday night, you know, they are building something new using fresh off the presses APIs. Are there enough kids that are good at programming to do well at these hackathons? Well, again, I mean, good at programming. Well, <laughs> you know, are they building the next, you know, the next Instagram who, who knows? I mean, you know, mm. they're all, all, all the projects wind up a little differently. Some of them are, are, you know, finished. Some of them are not even close. Some of them are total fails. The motivation around a lot of the kids. Now I talked about the professional hackathoners. Yeah, it's money. It's bragging rights for sure. With the kids, you know, there is a great desire to hone their skills and to learn and to really see, put themselves to a test, see what was possible. Mm. So, you know, are the kids good? Are there enough kids that are good enough at coding to, to have projects that do well, you know, again, it's, it's a sliding, sliding scale. Well, 
What's interesting is that the the prevalence of technology. I think you know this the smartphone. The fact that kids get expo- all kids get exposed to smartphones. Well, all kids, you know, most kids in the United yeah. States get exposed to a smartphone. And you know, say what you will about the societal effects of that or the behavioral effects of that on kids, it certainly builds a fluency with technology at a young age. And it's hard to say how well that fluency in technology translates to an ability to code and to understand how to design computer systems. But you got to assume that there is some positive impact there. Yeah, I mean, you know, definitely early exposure. Now it's not something that's locked away in this big mainframe. It's in your pockets. It's right. your entertainment. It's your connection. And it, because it's it's so prevalent and there are so many new tools that have been developed that make things so much easier to right. build than ever before that the interest level and the curiosity level has gone up as the barriers have gone down. You've got things like Scratch and, and Hopscotch and some other ones, some visual, you know, languages that you can kind of cut and paste as a kid. I mean, it's kind of like playing a little game of Tetris. I don't know if you've played around with Scratch or not, but it's 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 really neat. And it it, it allows kids to kind of think in that way early. I mean, my what my youngest is in is in first grade and, you know, they were doing programming in kindergarten. And that's not not unusual. Well, I remember when I was I mean, depending on where your definition of a kid is, but you know, maybe <laughs> maybe eleven or twelve, or perhaps fourteen or fifteen. I wanted to be a writer. I thought that the cool thing to do, if you're going to be a creative person or an artist, is you write the next great American novel or just the great the great novel that maybe it's it's appreciated <laughs> worldwide. But right. now, how'd that work out? Well, it, it didn't really work out. I mean, but you know, maybe I'm making the great American podcast. But, you know, I think that the thing that a lot of people dream of these days, the creative young people, is you want to make the next great app. Like, that's that's the aspiration. Do you think that aspirations have shifted among young kids where they there are a lot more kids dreaming of entrepreneurship? I mean, entrepreneurship or technology creation was not even something that was on my radar when I was a kid. Oh, totally. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you know, you look at these massive success stories and of course they're the point oh 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 one percent. Nobody talks about the failures, but you know, and, and a lot of people are just kind of in the middle, but but the aspirational level is 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 huge for a lot of these kids and it's become this bona fide career path of being an entrepreneur, you know, and is starting something on your own, you know, and there is a lot of interest in that. And that's a category, you know, in tech entrepreneurship that, you know, I won't say it didn't exist you know, 30, 40 years ago, but it certainly, it was nowhere near as large or as loud. Yeah. Arguably it might've even been taboo. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe, maybe so in some countries in the United States, not so much, but yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not, maybe not taboo, but you know, you tell somebody, well, at least if you're, you know, if you're a 20 something and you decide to go quote unquote, start a business, like 10 years ago, if you did that, it was like, okay, you're some kind of weirdo. You're not, you're not going yeah. to med school. You're not going to law school. You're but in some ways it's attracted kind of some people are, are in it just for them for the money though and that's yeah. that's really the wrong reason and I, I've seen that shift I'm sure you have too because you, you talk to so many people in this field but you know it's created this this glut of people that are starting companies just for the sake of starting them and you know it's it's become ex- you know early stage funding has gotten a lot a lot easier in recent years certainly there was a pullback in a lot of late stage funding last year nationwide but the early stage is still going strong which is why it is so hard for 
people to get tech talent is because, you know, entrepreneurs that I talk to, they say, yeah, I've got my first five people or I've got my first 10 people, but everyone else I want to hire, they're all doing their own startups, Mm. you know? So all the people they would hire, they're all doing their own startups already. It's, it's, it's kind of a funny situation. And then of course you've got competition from the, the really big ones as well. So it's, it's tricky here in, in Silicon Valley and in Seattle and New York and Boston, even Austin and Salt Lake City to some extent too. Yeah, well, this is something that's it's interesting to me. And I'm sure you talk about it a lot to people because you're uh, reporting on this kind of stuff and just talking to people who are who have their their fingers on the pulse of hiring slash tech slash everything in Silicon Valley, and it is becoming really easy to start a company. And there's certainly some outcry at oh the people who are entering are just in it for the money or whatever. But I would I would rather have a glut of people starting technology companies for the money than have a glut of people becoming doctors or lawyers for my, I mean, you know, you'd, you'd rather have somebody selling you a a SaaS product that they, you know, for for some marketing thing that they started just because they wanted to make money. than like you walk into an, you know, a a dermatologist's office who, you know, they're just in it for the money and they're going to try to sell you some crap that you don't really need. And, but you know, the, the hiring question is interesting because if you're, if you're a young engineer and you've got an option between going to Google and starting a company and getting some easy funding from Y Combinator. It, it seems like the it's really changed the the composition of people who are going to these large tech. I mean, how how much is it impacting the the hiring pipeline of these giant tech companies that it's become so easy to be entrepreneurial outside of the outside of a big tech company? That's a really good question. I, it, it seems like, you know, I mean, I think each company has its own dynamics. I've yet to meet someone that's working at a large company that doesn't have a project or two on the side that they're doing kind of on their own time and they're inspired by something. Maybe they're working with a friend, maybe they're working alone. So I don't see the two as mutually exclusive. At least that's, that's not what I've, what I've viewed. Now, you know, how seriously they work on one of those things, you know, I mean, how, how much time do, do you have? You know, if you're super hyper motivated person, and you're working on the weekends and at nights too, there are some people that have done that and then quit their, their solid gig as soon as they got their startup off the ground. Mm. And, um, certainly there are a lot of stories about that and some quiet people working very quietly on things like that as well. Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe you haven't thought about this much and don't know anything about it or, but, but so I think about from an investment point of view, sometimes like mm-hmm. software engineers are just this huge asset. So like, engineers basically have for for a for a company they hire an engineer at a fixed cost structure which is their salary i mean there's some variable mm-hmm. cost i guess in terms of if you're giving them equity and your and the equity that you're allocating to them is fluctuating mm-hmm. then there's some variable cost but for the most part it's fixed it's a fixed cost you can look at it as a fixed cost and yet they produce these software products that spin off really high margins of recurring revenue. So if you get an engineer that you're hiring at a fixed cost structure and they design a software product that has outsized returns, that's a really mm-hmm. good equation. And from my point of view, that's why these, you know, some of these companies like Facebook and Google have such incredible profit margins. I mean, the, their profit margins are 
so tremendous. You know, unless you are really looking at these companies up close, it's probably you're probably underappreciating how just how much money they are making per engineer. And that's that's actually what led me to just like leaving kind of the corporate environment, and just being like, well, this is hmm. this is a this is kind of a terrible deal. If I'm an engineer going to work at one of these big companies, you know, I I get paid certainly good amounts of money, but the the profit margin per engineer is so tremendous that it's it kind of feels like a scam. Do do you think that the market is currently structured to undervalue software engineers in these corporate environments? Wow, that's a leading question if I've ever heard one. Um, (laughs) Well, I can see that point. I could definitely argue that point. But since you already did, I'm going to take the other side Mm. because I think it's it's a more interesting conversation. I would say, yeah, they're a fixed cost. But you know what? They're not a fixed asset. The companies do not own them. Just look what happened, you know, when the whole self-driving debacle with Google and Uber and Lewandowski and all that, you know, they, they quit. They do their own thing. They've got their own side project. Mm. You, you don't, you know, we are an at-will employment state here in, in California and in other spots throughout the nation and the world for that matter. And, you know, so I think it's up to the individual engineer to do what's right for him or her. And in your case, it sounded like you did the math and you said, I'm getting a raw deal, you know, and you found something, you know, new, that's a really, really good fit and, and mazel tov on that. For others, maybe they don't want to deal with, you know, doing the, this, you know, the, the marketing development, the, the, you know, business development, the partnership deals, hiring a whole sales team, you know, there is a lot of infrastructure and support that goes around. It's not just the product. And, and you know, as well as anyone, yeah. the best technology does not always win. In fact, it usually mm. loses. It's, it's usually something else. So, so that would be my, my devil's advocate answer to that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a fair response. And, you yeah. know, I would say, I will say there's certainly a lot of comforts to working at a big company, but okay. Getting back to the, the hackathons for a bit. So do you, from your point of view, is the ROI for a hackathon worth it that you know, the, these companies are spending? Okay. Well, there's two, two people investing or two groups of people, two, two groups. There's the, the, the people, the participants is the ROI worth it. You know, they spend a weekend, they go in and they fan all their social commitment. Sometimes they give up their health. I talked to one guy who had to stop doing hackathons because he would get deathly sick always the last couple days, you know, a couple days after they concluded. So that's one, one group, you know, they learn, they make friends, they have bragging rights, they get money and prizes. The other side, is it worth it for the corporations? The ones that I talk to say, absolutely. Yes. It doesn't cost that much. Take a look at IBM Watson and their three, it's a five year, $3 million prize, or I might be inversing. It might be three million five, three year, $5 million, but it's for their AI Watson prize. And it's something that they've been investing in for a long time. And they have these different hackathons, not only that one, but there's, there's a couple of hundred that they have going on at any given time. So it's a, you know, and when I asked, I said, well, why, why do you do it? What's the ROI? They said, we don't know. We just know that it pays off later down the line, Mm. you know, and then you look at companies like Twilio, for example, that, you know, their entire strategy, the whole reason that they were able to grow the way they did is because they sold to an individual like an enterprise. They sold their APIs one developer at a time, one hackathon at a time for for several years before they got to the point where they could go public. Mm. So is it worth it for these corporations, these companies? Hell yes. Yeah. That's my short that's my short answer. I mean, based on 
you know, the fact that they're conti- not only continuing to do them, but there's more. Well, the Twilio one is more convincing to me where you can say, okay, we went, we held a hackathon and we got these accounts at a hackathon. Then they can track the ROI on those accounts and just be like, well, well, that was definitely worth it. And, and also, you know, that's the approach of kind of, well, let's, let's have a hackathon and it'll pay off someplace down the line. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that works. Maybe it doesn't. Probably harder to track, but I guess all marketing is hard to track. Yeah, so I, I, you know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about media in, in general because I, I interviewed Brad Stone a few months ago, and he, he's your colleague at Bloomberg, and I asked him about the current media landscape. We had a lot of interesting conversations uh, around that because there's a lot of small players and in the media industry today, and there's also some a few very big players. So my company, Software Engineering Daily, is really small. Bloomberg is really big and the conversation I had with with Brad was sort of what are the roles of the different sizes of media organizations what do you think these different sized media organizations are are better suited to Hmm. that's a great question and it keeps changing it seems like like daily the role of an every news organization is to inform and hopefully entertain and illuminate, you know, shed light on something that the reader or the listener wasn't aware of before. And they walk away going, aha, and it helps them navigate the world better with accurate information, help them navigate it better, make better choices, and hopefully be a better citizen. And, you know, I, I started, you know, my, my career on a very small paper on the U.S.-Mexican border, um, on the California-Mexican border. And I think about how that newsroom has shrunk over time and other new small newsrooms have shrunk and shrunk over time and just kind of the consolidation in these large ones. And, you know, a lot of the, you asked what the role is for smaller news organizations. I think it's to look under rocks that some of the big guys forget about and they are close to what is going on. They have the sources, they have the local access they have, you know, the the ability to to you know point a finger at something when 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 wrongs are being done either at a city council level or zoning and ordinance level or things like that and do right by their community by acting as the fourth estate. You know, some smaller new organizations don't have the financial resources. They don't have the team of lawyers. They can't, you know, wait you know, two, three years to do like a huge investigative piece because they don't have the financial, they just don't have the financial resources to do that. So, you know, that's where I see some of the larger ones coming into play and stepping up and doing their share. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I certainly think about the Theranos story with John Kerry Rue recently. I don't, right. know, I don't know if you followed oh, that much. It but great it's... story. Did I follow it? Every single piece yeah. of it. It was very strong uh, reporting and really, really quite a story. And the perfect illustration of what a big media company can do for you if you're a reporter, I think he spent like nine or 10 months just following that lead and picking it apart before he could actually publish anything. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's a that's the type of story that it was. Every story is different, of course, just like every hacker is different and every, you know, podcast is different. But, but one thing that each story has to have is it, you know, especially in this age of like fake news is everything has to be really nailed down beyond belief. Not like it didn't have to before, but I think that the, the bar has gotten even higher, you know, as the stakes have gotten higher. Yep. 
with un- unnamed sources and also ensuring that, you know, documents are verified and the such. And, and, and that takes resources and that takes money. I agree with that. And this is certainly something that I've built an appreciation for in the last, uh, the last four months or so, just right before I would honestly, before that, I was just like, you know what? Down with the giant media institutions. Nobody needs these things. We should break all of them. The, you know, the the way that the market is is suggesting to us that things should go is all the giant media companies should be broken up, and you just have these individual reporters. You have Brad Stone reporting on X. You have Kara Swisher reporting on X. You have John Kerry reporting on X. Who needs these giant media institutions? And now my opinion on that has totally shifted where there is a lot of value out of having these big institutions. Maybe that was obvious to somebody like you who has more experience in this field than I do, but it was actually kind of a wake-up call to me. Right. Now, I'm with you. I mean, I I think that the the landscape overall has changed a lot. I think that we're in for more changes as we navigate new just, you know, (laughs) new areas and and looking at the checks and, and balances that we have for are our three branches of government and the role that the fourth estate needs to play. The fourth estate, is that the press? Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. So, you know, there was a story on Decrypt, the, the Bloomberg Decrypted podcast recently about these Chinese proclivity towards subscriptions. Like in China, people right. are just willing to pay for stuff, which is awesome. It, it makes me wonder, do you think that we're going to see the bigger, inst- like Bloomberg, for example. Could you see Bloomberg moving towards more of a subscription model than the ad-supported model or, or more readership going in that direction? You know, I can't speak for what Bloomberg intends to to do mm. or what, you know, New York Times or Wall Street Journal or, or anyone, really. But I I understand why it's more convenient to do payments you know, in some countries where, you know, they just, you know, leaped over the whole internet 1.0, 2.0, they're already on mobile. It's just a lot more convenient. It's streamlined. It's all in, you know, on Alibaba or all in, you know, Baidu or what have you. And it's, it's, it's all in one, one spot. Are people willing to pay, you know, subscriptions are, are, are doing well at New York times right now. You know, they're definitely up. I think it's a slow transition. You know, people like to get things for free. You know, and paying for content, even well, well researched and accurate, and and you know, it's something that uh, you know that traditionally has been supported by ads. I, I think that's going to take you know take some time, but we're, we're we're getting there. Hopefully, there'll be enough options for all types of readers. You know, if they are if they're willing to go through ads, great. You know, if they want to subscribe and just skip the ads and get all the information and maybe you know some of the analysis and some of the data that they want to do their own deep digging and their own their own research. They can do that too. Okay, Lizette. Well, it's it's been a real pleasure talking to you about hackathons and media and everything. What are the topics that you're reporting on now, and uh, what should we look for in the future? You know, I'm constantly interested in what is next and what is new. So startups continue to be a, a major focus. Interested in cybersecurity that never gets old. Interested in fintech. There's a lot happening in insurance tech. If I hear AI or VR one more time, I think I'm going to feel ill. <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of not so hot on those. You know, I've yet to find a way to make the API story sexy, although I really think it is. And one of these days, I'm going to figure out a good way to tell that story. I agree with you. Um, you know, I, just, I, I do. I think it's really interesting. Um, I think personalities are, are huge, hugely important because 
the, the character of people can drive a business to greatness and also reduce it to ashes. And we've seen a mm. lot of really poor behavior on the part of some founders, not all. There's still some great founders and some great CEOs making excellent decisions. There's also some that have made some very poor decisions, uh-huh. you know, not, not only at Theranos, but you know, Zenefits. you can look at you know, Zenefits, Uber, Tanium. That was one that my colleague Sarah McBride and I recently reported on. So there's, there's a lot out there. And I think, you know, finding, finding the extremes is always interesting while recognizing that the reality is usually somewhere or the, you know, the, the majority lands somewhere in the middle. The personalities in this business are are so <laughs> so mercurial. I mean, you get the incredibly mercurial people who are just, I mean, or your colleague who wrote the Elon Musk book, Ashley Vance. Ashley Vance. I yeah, mean, yeah, that book was astonishing. Talk about a real right. life character that is as exciting as any fictional character I've ever read about. Yeah. 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 There are a lot of really interesting personalities, and you know, you have to be really, really strong to make it, to make something out of nothing. I have the utmost respect for founders and for entrepreneurs that just kind of throw a chunk of coral out into the middle of the ocean and say, grow ecosystem, grow, you know, they're, they're, they're starting something from, from nothing. And it's, it's, you know, they have to be a little bit crazy, I think, and just believe and, and just kind of this, this (sighs) believe in what they're doing and, and do it with conviction and with passion and, and really, really believe in it to convince people to join them as employees, to invest in them, to partner with them, and then to buy their stuff. You know, yeah. and, then, and then there's more, you know, but it, it, the, the personalities fascinate me. I think, I think our readers and our listeners too. So, so more on that to come. Yeah. Okay. So one quick thing. I bet you can make the API story sound sexy if you start calling it serverless. Have you heard that term? Only when I'm, I'm in happy hour at a bar, it's serverless. Okay. Ser- no, I, no, I have not. I've not for, for API now. Yes. Uh, so if you want to make that story, because I agree with you, the API story <laughs> is sexy. It uh, is. And the sexy term for it, I think that you're going to hear more and more of is is serverless. Serverless. So, so if you serverless. Want, okay. If you want some clickbait, there you go. <laughs> Heard it first here. <laughs> Heard it first here. Okay. Thanks, Lizette. It was great talking to you. Hey, you too. Have a good one. <laughs>